Hey friends, you are listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. To learn more about Grace Story and how you can get plugged into our community, visit gracestory.church. If you will, turn with me to 2 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. 2 Peter, chapter 3. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness shall dwell. This is the word of the Lord. All right, that's 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 13. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 13. If you'll turn there, we will dig right in. How many people lost power last night? Just us? Okay. Yeah, we, were, we knew our power had gone out, but we had been to our family Christmas just a few minutes after the tornado threat passed, and Afterwards, we were going to go by our house and hoping that the power would be back on so we could stay the night there instead of at the in-laws' house. Well, we came back around the south side. We were in the north, and we came back around the south side and started coming up towards our house. And we noticed, well, the lights are on in this neighborhood, which is the first neighborhood south of our neighborhood. That was encouraging, right? And I hope our lights are on. Well, we turn the corner and get on our actual street and the lights are on south of the traffic signal. We get the traffic signal. It's functioning. We get across the traffic signal, and the houses have power. Lights are on. Everything's good. And we get about six or seven houses down our street where we can finally see hours around the bend, and it's utter darkness. And it was the most disappointing thing because we really just wanted to stay at our own house instead of going to the in-laws house but of course more important than that we were thankful that we emerged unscathed from the tornado but isn't hope isn't hope kind of like that sometimes how often how often are our hopes disappointed in some small way how often are we hoping for a particular outcome how often even in those small momentary experiences How often are we hoping for a particular outcome only to be somewhat or sometimes completely disappointed? That's the way, that's the way things often go in life, isn't it? And so hope can start to feel just a little bit hopeless, 
right? Hope can start to feel aloof. Hope can start to feel like a waste of energy. Hope can start to feel like an emotional trick. Hope can start to feel like it's not going to be worth the effort. But Peter here, Peter here is asking us to actually build our lives around the reliability of hope. Peter's actually saying to us that hope is the thing around which we can build a life. It's the foundation upon which we can build a life. And so I want to dig in here to see why hope for Peter is so significant. Here's the first thing. And Peter makes this clear through his grammar. Look at verse 8. Do not overlook this one fact, he says. And overlooking things is kind of like our specialty in this life, isn't it? We overlook the obvious over and over again. But here it's not necessarily the obvious that he wants us to make sure we notice. Instead, it's something that may catch us by surprise. Look at this. Here's what he says we have to pay close attention to. Not to overlook it. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. That's what Peter's so excited about. He tells us not to overlook. It reminds me a little bit of Narnia time. Have you guys read the Chronicles of Narnia? And what happens is when the Pevensey children go to Narnia, they spend what seems like years or decades, maybe longer, but when they return to earth, it's only been a moment. And then they'll spend years on earth, but they have no idea how much time has passed in Narnia. It may have been mere months. It may have been decades. It may have been centuries. Entire epochs of time have passed since they spent just a couple of years in their life here on earth. Or the opposite. Just no relationship whatsoever to the way time works on earth in Narnia. Well, God's timing is different. And the way Peter describes it, God's time is not longer and it's not shorter. I think we often think of it in terms of God's time being longer in the sense that God is always, always experiencing things in such a way that 5,000 years is like five minutes, right? That God is just so infinitely patient that every vast amount of time gets reduced to this tiny, tiny little span of time. But that's not what Peter says, is it? Look at what Peter actually says. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. You see that? The, the, time span, the time span negation works in both directions. A thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. What does that mean? Well, it means that time is meaningless from the point of view of God's own experience. It's all the same to him. Five minutes, five years, five millennia. God is not constrained by time in the same way we are. 
And what does that mean? Well, it has really important implications. The first one is, because of that, it's true that God is patient. With the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. The Lord is patient toward you. And Peter is contrasting this patience, which is true, with this accusation that's not true, which is that God is slow. God's not slow. He's just patient. Wouldn't that be an awesome retort? Like if you get in a foot race with somebody and you run as hard as you can, and then at the end they beat you and they're like, dude, you're slow. It's like, no, nah, I'm not slow. I'm just patient. <laughs> well, God is patient. He's not slow. He's not slow to fulfill his promise, but he's patient. And here's why God is patient, for a very particular reason. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now I'm going to go on a limb and I'm going to say that almost everyone in this room has heard this verse. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. How many of you have heard this verse before? If you grew up in church, you've probably heard this verse. And I'm going to imagine that most of you, maybe even if you didn't grow up in church, have heard that with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, now, here's the question I want to ask. How many of you have consciously realized that these two statements actually go together? Raise your hand. Right? Isn't that strange? Two very well-known verses that are actually contextually together they're not just adjacent their entire meaning is bound up with one another and yet we've remembered them in complete isolation from each other isn't that strange I mean, that's why context is so essential because it helps us to see the real meaning of the text and not the imaginary meaning that we can easily deposit into an isolated verse so what's going on here? Well, God's, God's complete freedom from time informs his patience, which is driven by a deep desire for people to come to the faith. Listen, I got a text message today that changed my entire sermon illustration. My buddy texts me and tells me that God in his patience today brought his 93-year-old grandmother to faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Man, and somebody said, look, the Lord just looked down and said, yeah, his 93-year-old grandma. I want her today. She's one of mine. That's the patience of God just playing out in real life. So God, God is patient, but this is spoken in a particular context. Well, patient about what? What's he patient about? Well, he's patient about not coming and destroying all things. <laughs> right? Did you guys hear that passage in Zechariah that, that Nick read? And you've got like this Christmas carol playing in the background. And then you've got Nick like, God will come and bring his thunder and lay to waste all things. And men will weep. Did you catch the contrast there? We're not used to that at Christmas time, are we? We're not used to hearing these sweet Christmas carols and being reminded of God's judgment. But the coming of Christ is a signal of exactly that. 
It's a signal that God's justice is real and it's been inaugurated at last. Jesus didn't arrive in a vacuum. Jesus arrived in a world where things were terribly off course. The people of Israel were suffering once again as slaves, this time not as exiles and slaves in Egypt, but as exiles nonetheless and slaves in their own country, in their own land, in their own territory. And Jesus comes to articulate the justice of God. Now you would think he would articulate the justice of God, particularly against those who are inhabiting the promised land, right? Those who have colonized the promised land. You would think that's who Jesus would come, (coughs) towards whom he would articulate justice. But no, he actually articulates the justice of God too. The people who have a responsibility to God. Israel, doesn't he? We read that all throughout the Gospels, that Jesus' coming is the justice of God being inaugurated. But God is patient. He he hasn't completed his judgment. He hasn't completely fulfilled his justice. But in Christ, he has inaugurated it, and he has guaranteed it. He inaugurates it in the birth of Christ, which we celebrate at Christmas. Remember, this is the reason that kings trembled at the birth of Jesus, isn't it? Why do you think Herod wanted Jesus to be killed when he was born? Because Jesus brought glad tidings? Is that the reason he wanted Jesus to be killed? No, he wanted Jesus to be killed when he was born because Jesus meant justice. Jesus meant judgment for all the nations on the earth. Particularly, perhaps, the person who styled himself as the king of the Jews, right? God in his patience has not brought the final ending yet. Because he desires, he desires that all should reach repentance. And if you're a reformed-minded Christian like me, someone who has a firm and stout-hearted belief in the sovereignty of God in all things, someone who believes with your whole heart that God controls every moment and every molecule, right? Then this passage is the kind of passage that could put a little stitch in your giddy-up, right? He, He desires all to come to repentance. He's not wishing that any should perish. But listen, No matter where you stand theologically, we have to give a full-throated yes to every word of Scripture. And we can't let our theological preferences blind us to the clear message of the text. So we can preach this with clarity, with honesty, with sincerity. Yes, God desires that none should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And he demonstrates this by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to come and bear the sins of all who believe on the cross. And he sends his church to declare the gospel, not just to every person, but what does it say? To every creature, all creation. Why? Because God wants everything to be made new. 
That's real and true. So God is patient. And we're still thinking about things we shouldn't overlook, by the way. Don't overlook that God's timing is different. Don't overlook that God is patient. And don't overlook the fact that God will act. Look at verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will come like a thief. Now, historically, all throughout the Bible, when you hear about the day of the Lord, it's talking about one day, a literal day. It's talking about this thing that's going to happen in a day when the Lord is going to come, right? Well, what happens in the New Testament is something strange happens, and Jesus actually helps us understand that this day is split into two, right? There's the day of the Lord, part A, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and then there's the day of the Lord, part B, which is Jesus' second coming, where he brings the ultimate conclusion to all of history. And Peter here is describing day of the Lord, part B. And he says that the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So first of all, the Lord will come like a thief. What does that mean? Well, he's going to come in a surprising manner at a surprising time. I used to make the joke that if somebody predicts when Jesus is going to come back, all we find out is one day in particular that Jesus absolutely will not come back. Right? Of course, that's not true either. God's not a reactionary. He's not waiting for someone to make a prediction so that he can move his timetable. But there's a hint of truth in it in the sense that we don't know. Jesus himself said he doesn't know. No chart, no secret decoder ring can tell us the moment of Christ's return. It's going to come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Now, this word dissolved, it's the word luo in Greek. It's like one of the first words you learn when you're learning Greek. It's almost got a nostalgic feeling to it. But it actually, the plain meaning of luo is to loose or to, to let loose. So, you know, when you untie your shoes, you loose them. Are you with me? So loose. And I think that's actually interesting because we know that in Christ, all things what? Hold together and so this idea of destruction is the opposite of being held together what is it? it's loosed right or, or as this translation says dissolved another translation that would be perfectly accurate would be destroyed but it's but it's got this idea connected to it of a loosing so we destroy the heavenly bodies by releasing them loosing them right and then the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. So there's going to be destruction, and then there's going to be judgment, right? And that's what's going to happen when the day of the Lord comes. And when you read in the Old Testament, there are, so there's the ultimate day of the Lord that we're talking about, but there are also references to penultimate days of the Lord, right? When God's judgment is going to come at a particular time and place for a particular reason to a particular generation, 
And that happens over and over again. And you hear themes like you will run from the lion only to be eaten by a bear, right? So it's just destruction is inescapable. And no matter how much Israel you think because you have Torah, you're going to be on the right side of God's judgment, you're not. You're going to face God's judgment in the day of the Lord. And here we hear that the whole earth and all the heavens are going to be destroyed on the day of the Lord. And now Peter is going to tell us what to do about it. Since everything is going to be destroyed, it's all going to be dissolved, it's all going to be burned up, it's all going to be loose, just let fly away, right, into nothingness. Have you ever watched an astronaut show where the astronaut gets untethered and their death is just them floating off into space? It, it's like up there for me with like drowning and getting burned up in terms of ways I don't really want to go, you know, getting untethered in space doesn't sound very pleasant, but like that's the heavenly body just untethered out of orbit, just floating off and dissolving into nothingness. Since that's all going to happen, that's jolly, right? What do we do? How do we live? Have you ever heard the word nihilism? Anybody ever heard that word? Yeah, it's the, the idea that Everything is meaningless because it's headed inevitably toward destruction. And since it's meaningless, we don't have any particular agency that's actually going to shift anything. We're just, you know, molecules bouncing off of each other. So, do what you want. Don't bear any particular responsibility. But what does Peter say? Peter actually makes this exact proposition. All things will be dissolved. Therefore, therefore, what are we supposed to do? Not give up. Not embrace the meaninglessness and do whatever we want. What does he say to do? Let's see, he asked the question, since all things are going to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? So we ought to be holy and godly people because everything's going to get dissolved. That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? You should be waiting for the hastening and the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. So in other words, this truth ought somehow to lead us to a more serious engagement with God's desire for our lives. We ought to be godly and holy, not in spite of the fact that it's all going to burn, but because of the fact that it's all going to burn. How about them apples? That's a different way of looking at it, right? So why? Why can a nihilistic person <coughs> look at this same fact that everything is going to burn and conclude that we should just write existence off as meaningless. And then Peter looks at this fact that everything is going to burn and conclude that we ought to press in even harder to obedience to the Lord's commands. 
How is that possible? It's because the nihilist and Peter use different middle terms in their argument, right? So they both have this first premise. Everything is going to be destroyed. But for the nihilist, the middle term is, and nobody is in charge or in control. Right? And nobody is in charge or in control. In other words, it's not headed anywhere. It's not going anywhere. There's no destination. It's just going to be destroyed. And nobody's in charge. Nobody's in control. Therefore, all of this is meaningless. That's a valid proposition, isn't it? Sounds pretty good. But for Peter, there's a different middle term. Look, all things are going to be destroyed, but, but there is a good and loving and saving God with a plan who's governing and controlling everything. Therefore, we ought to, we ought to be living lives of holiness and godliness. Now, that's a valid proposition that I can get on board with because it accounts for the most important fact of history, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It accounts for the plain reality of the universe. Step outside and wonder at the vast expanse of the heavenlies and tell me that there's not a God. Your heart testifies that there is a good and loving creator who made these things. Man, and you may have buried it, you may have suppressed it to the point that you can barely even hear your own heart testifying of his goodness and his reality. But you know, you know that God made these things to demonstrate his glory so that you would have no excuse and no reason to disbelieve. So what should we do? What should we do? Well, I know what those who trust in Christ are doing. And Peter reminds us here in verse 13. According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Praise God. There's only one problem with that. One problem with what Peter says here. That is that I want to dwell there. And Peter says it's a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Those two things are not congruent. I want to dwell there, but Peter says it's a place where righteousness dwells. So how am I going to fit in? Right? I don't belong in a place where righteousness dwells. I can't, I can't live up to that. I can't stand up to that. If that's the, if that's the bar, I'm, I'm, not, 
I'm not going to be there because here's the deal. Everywhere I go, there I am. Right? I can't get away from myself. I can't get away from the truth that I'm a sinner. I can't get away from the truth that I desire things that are out of alignment with reality, out of alignment with God's glory, out of alignment with his revealed purposes. Man, I, in my own energy, I can't even bring myself to want the things that God calls beautiful. Man, in my own energy, I'm going to find a heaven deflated and flat and undesirable. But according to his promise, we are waiting. According to his promise, we are waiting. What is his promise? It's not just, it's not just that righteousness is going to dwell in this new heaven and a new earth, but that righteousness is going to dwell in you. That Jesus Christ will perfect his righteousness in his people through the power of his Holy Spirit and the ministry of the church and the testimony of his word as we feed on it, feast on it, give ourselves to the study of it across a lifetime. And our hope is not just that Jesus is going to be everything, but that Jesus is going to be all in all. And his righteousness in you will make you right at home. His righteousness in you will make you right at home in this new heaven and new earth where righteousness dwell. His righteousness alone Your righteousness will not get the job done. The other day somebody was asking me a question. It was like, why are you doing that? I said, well, I said I would do it. I was like, so you're just, you just trying to be a man of your word? And I was like, yeah, just trying to be a man of my word. But that's fine. You know, it's just casual conversation. But as is my want, I got to thinking about it later. And I was thinking, well, I'm not... I'm not trying to be a man of my word. That's not what I'm doing at all. I'm trying, I'm trying to keep my word. I'm not trying, check this out, to establish my identity. I'm not trying to become something. It's already established who I am, what I am. It's already true that in Christ I am the righteousness of God. So what am I doing? Well, I'm just acting in alignment with who I am. I'm trying to live a congruent life. I'm trying, to be, I'm trying to be true to reality. I'm trying to be true to the grace of God. I'm trying to be true to the reality that is at work inside of me. I'm not trying to be something. You with me? You see how the language kind of slips in casually? We start to just kind of accept it and go along with it, but we don't realize like these things shape they shape the way that we see the world. They shape the way that we filter reality. So here's, here's, here's my challenge. Number one, admit that you're a sinner. 
Just admit it. It's, it's the most freeing thing in the world to look straight at the Lord and say, I'm a sinner, just as you have said. He already knows it. You know it. Just admit it. Admit it often. I mean, several times a day is my prescription. Right? Like an apple a day keeps a doctor away. No, 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 no. Like a confession an hour is probably the way to go. Just admit it over and over again. Admit it often. And here's the other part. Admit it quickly. Have you ever, you know, you kind of like go on and on inside your head about how, well, you know, I... Yeah, it's fine. I, I did this. It's not this. And, and we're like defining terms around our sin instead of just admitting that was sin against God. Right? That thing. You guys do that thing? Or just me? I do that thing. Stop doing that. And instead, just admit it quickly. That's sin. It's inglorious. It's an affront against your nature, Lord. I confess it. I admit it readily, quickly. So admit you're a sinner. Then, trust in the salvation of Christ. (laughs) God has done it. And the best time to trust in the salvation of Christ is right that next moment after you just admitted your sin. (laughs) Remind yourself immediately, this is why Jesus died. This is what makes me a candidate for God's salvation. I'm a sinner. And that doesn't quite get me to the point of rejoicing at my own sin, but man, it gets me right up to the line. You with me? It gets me right up to the line of like, this is, I'm yours, Lord, and I'm I'm a candidate for your salvation because I'm a sinner and because I can see that I'm a sinner by your grace. You've given me this gift of knowing it. Man, I'm not glad I'm a sinner, but boy, I sure am glad I know it. And then receive God's forgiveness. Receive it. Allow the Holy Spirit to just testify to you that you're forgiven and accepted, you're His. And if you'll, do, if you'll do that, first of all, if you'll do that for the first time, if you'll do that for the first time, then you can trust. You can trust that Jesus will make you his. And he will work in you to make you more like him every moment for the rest of your life. He will not waste a single second of your life. He'll use all of it to shape you into his likeness so that you'll fit right in in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And for those of you who've already trusted him for the first time, if you'll continue to do this on a daily basis, this is how you will make progress in the faith. If you leave out any of it, you're going to go sideways, I promise you. If you leave out the confession, you're going to find yourself trusting in your own righteousness. If you leave out the trust, 
you're going to find yourself just overwhelmed with the weight of your sin. If you leave out receiving his forgiveness, you're going to take it for granted and you're not going to enjoy the life of gratitude that God intends for you. And therefore, you know what else you'll miss out on? You'll miss out on joy because gratitude's how you get there. And the truth is, what Jesus did at the end of his life is what gives meaning to what Jesus did at the beginning of his life, isn't it? So if you want to know the real, ultimate meaning of Christmas, it is this, that because of your faith in Jesus Christ, you can now wait with joy and eagerness for the coming day of the Lord rather than with fear and trepidation and dread. It, there's no in-between. You with me? There's no in-between. You can wait with eagerness and joy and anticipation or you can wait with dread and fear and worry. So let's spend this Christmas rejoicing in the great hope that we have in a coming Savior who's going to make everything wicked untrue. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we trust you. We admit that we are desperate sinners. God, our thoughts go astray from your desires. Our actions go astray from your desires. Our words go astray from your desires. We need your forgiveness on a daily, hourly basis. God, help us to admit it and help us to trust in the saving work of Christ and help us to receive your forgiveness through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Help us to remind each other of the gospel day after day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Story Church podcast. For more resources and information on our church, visit gracestory.church.